Join me in Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. Uh, and uh, this evening, I want to address for just a moment uh, the way to devastate God. Now, I know you didn't wake up this morning saying, I look forward to the opportunity to do that. But the thing I want you to understand is that we can make an impact upon God. We can bless God. We can satisfy God. We can cause the heart of God to rejoice. There is something dynamic about that relationship and our walk with God. At the same time, we can dishearten God. We can dismay God. And Isaiah 59 verse 16 has something like that. Here in the text is the word shamim, and it's a rather intense term. It is not translated in some of the English translations uh, with intense English words such as Isaiah 59. It's rather mild. However, the context would dictate that the word be translated uh, devastate, uh, dismay, dishearten. Uh, even though in verse 16 of the New King James Version, it uses the word wonder. But I want you to notice here that in verses 1 through 15, you've got dire circumstances in Israel that should break the heart of any normal person. But it doesn't Israel. In fact, the circumstances are, are devastating and the people praise some of the awfulness taking place in Israel at the time. And it should have, however, devastated them and moved them to prayer. But verse 16 says this, He saw that there was no man. God saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. In other words, God looked and saw that there was no one with a broken heart to pray and pursue him about the national crisis taking place in Israel. And the text says he wondered that there was no intercessor. The word wondered is the Hebrew word shamim. should be translated devastated. It's the word used in Genesis 47, verse 19, for the devastation of the land during the famine when Joseph was ruling Egypt. And so that's how God felt in his soul that there was a famine of love and spiritual sensitivity from the people of Israel. Uh, it's used in uh, Job 21, verse 5, where Job said, They looked upon me and were astonished. Of course, Job is covered from head to toe in boils. His body is just broken out in them, and it's a terrible, terrible thing. His friends see this, and they lift up their voices, and they wail. They're so dismayed and astonished looking at Job. That's the same word here. And then the word is used in a very, very difficult circumstance uh, that um, is... Um, uh, a, a bit delicate, but Tamar was violated in 2 Samuel 13, verse 20, and she was left devastated as a result of that. God feels the same way in this text in verse 16 of Isaiah 59, and what has led to that is that he looked during a crisis, a national crisis, and found no one to intercede for Israel in prayer. No one would go to battle for Israel, for its soul, for its integrity for its holiness, for anything in life, no one would come before God in that way to do something in prayer to pray on behalf of Israel. Now, the word intercede is the Hebrew word pagah, and it's used in other contexts like 1 Kings 2 for execution. It's a violent word. It's a word of war. It's a word that uh, indicates uh, battle. And so intercessory prayer is a way to go to battle for other people. And during a national crisis, 
where crisis loomed in every region, every area of Israel's life, God was devastated that no one would do battle in prayer for Israel, and so he had to act himself. Um, so the thing that we find in the text is this governs the text, and there are reasons why God would be devastated and brokenhearted when people will not pray for others. And uh, the first reason is this. The utterance of many prayers is abominable. The utterance of many prayers is abominable. It is a myth that God hears everyone's prayer. Now, he's capable of discerning the noise that comes from people's mouths and the meditations from people's hearts. But it is a myth that God receives every prayer favorably. Uh, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear. Israel's complaining. God's not acting. God's not responding to our prayers. What's wrong with God? And God replies, well, my ear is not deaf that I can't hear. My hand is not short and crippled up that I cannot reach down and save. The problem with unanswered, with unanswered prayer is not me, God says. But here's the problem in verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. There are some meditations of the heart, and there are some prayers uttered from the lips that God simply will not hear with the intention of answering and favoring and receiving. Uh, Proverbs, in fact, 28 verse 9 says, He who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is what? An abomination. There is some religious practice, even prayer, that's an abomination before God. Now, here's my point. If that's the case with some in our world because of their sin, because they've not cleared it through the blood of Jesus Christ, because they've not repented, if that's the case that some cannot reach God in prayer in their current spiritual state, they cannot pray for themselves, so we have got to. We've got to plead on their behalf before God and do war against evil and wickedness in hearts and lives, in belief systems, in theological systems, and come before God and plead with God to do something in their lives because they can't do it for themselves in their current spiritual state. God is delighted with such prayers and devastated when we don't lift them. But there's a second reason. The utterance of many prayers is abominable, but the need for our prayers is critical. Verses 3 through 18. Look, look, how, look, uh, look at the body parts that are represented here and how they're filled with sin. Beginning in verse 3. Your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Then we move on to the lips. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, a verbal act, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words, speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. And so uh, already the hands and the lips are full of sin. Uh, verse uh, number four at the end, they conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. It's as if the womb is full of sin and productive of sin in people's lives. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave spiders' webs. An another birthing analogy. He who eats her eggs dies and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Verses 7 and 8, their feet are full of sin. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting 
and destruction are in their path. It's like the Hollywood actress the other night that received a Golden Globe and said, I wouldn't be here had I not aborted my baby. The way of peace they've not known, and there's no justice in their ways. They've made themselves crooked paths, and whoever takes that way shall not know peace. And so the feet are full of sin. The eyes, verses 9 through 12, are full of sin. Verses 13 to 15 is a summary. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, concerning and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands afar off. For truth has fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter, so truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. A cancel culture all right there in verse 15 is what you find in the text for people who do the right thing. There is a need to pray. In other words, they are surrounded by calls to prayer. If they were living in our day and these were similar circumstances, many of the social media posts would be a reminder to call on God to pray. Many of the hallway conversations and conversations in parking lots would remind them to pray. The news broadcast would require us to pause it for a moment, bow our head before God, and pray. Yet, Israel is surrounded by all these calls to pray, and they will not pray, and they do not pray. This culture here, described here in this text, and much of what we live, reminds me of the fellow who uh, asked another, well, so what do you think about civilization? He said, well, I think it's a good idea. Somebody ought to try it once in a while. And the reason oftentimes God does not move in our midst is uh, this. The times are desperate, Vance Habner said, but the saints are not. In other words, our prayers have got to be just as desperate as the times or else God is upset by that kind of prayer life. But I'll remind you what Leonard Ravenhill said one time. He said, one way or another, there will come a point in time in our lives where God will make us learn to pray. God will press prayer upon it where that's all we can do. Even if it takes the nation capitulating to socialism, an outbreak of persecution, God will make sure that we learn how to pray. You know what? I just hope the word is enough. I just hope the word will be enough. So the need for prayers is critical. The utterance of some prayers is abominable. But third, the consequence of no prayer is horrible. Verses 16 to 18. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. So he couldn't find anyone to do battle in prayer for Israel. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. Now, that's, that's important. He's not saving Israel in verse 16. God is saving himself. Let, let, let me explain. His own righteousness, it sustained him. So God boosted himself. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, the coastlands he will fully repay. What's going on here? God does an act of salvation, not for Israel, but for himself. 
God is saving himself from the headache of Israel by performing the acts of verses 17 and 18. God is judging Israel to save himself from the headache that Israel has become. Because no one will step in and do battle for Israel's soul in prayer. And that prayerlessness then is an invitation for God to come judge the nation. And it is for ours. And that's what, uh, that's what devastates God. Uh, then, of course, because God would rather save and forgive and redeem than he would to judge. But because there's no one to plead for that, he is devastated. But there's a fourth reason. And that is the potential of some prayers is powerful. The potential of some prayers is powerful. And I'm so glad I was taught when I was young to call on God. I'm glad I was taught when I was younger, discipled and trained, to plead with God for souls and for families and for my own. The time I was single, but I prayed for future generations. I've got future generations in my family covered up until Jesus returns. And each morning I plead with God that He would do something in their lives, in the current generation of my family, and all the generations that He would, that God would act consistently with what I've read in His Word and work His Word in the lives of every generation of my family until the Lord returns, because we can do that. There is power, that kind of power, future shaping power in our prayers. That's the potential. I'm glad I was taught to do that. I was reminded of this a few years ago when I took some students to Houston, and we did uh, evangelism in a poor community and cleaned up. I mean, we prayed the stars down. The students especially did. Brought a lot of people to Jesus in three days. I think we saw 100 come to Christ. And then uh, we went to a real wealthy community. That was a very poor community, very wealthy community that missed the recession of 2009 and 10. The recession did not touch them. Do you know how satisfied people can get uh, whenever they've got too much? Well, that was this community. We prayed hard. God came through, and we saw about 100 people come to Christ in that community in uh, north, uh, northeast Houston. And I remember on a Saturday, I had to travel from place to place. They were doing block parties. I couldn't engage in the kind of personal evangelism with them as I'd done in the week. I was managing these uh, block parties. And I remember driving down a main road and watching a father and his son ride a bicycle up and down the road. And I just looked at him and I said, God, would you please get the gospel to them today? I, Lord, I know you want to save them. Would you do it today? I went to the second block party, went to the third, went to the fourth, and there those... Two men were, the father and son, students witnessing to them, and they were bowing their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ when I drove up. There is power, that kind of power, in prayer. The potential of some prayers and prayers is powerful. Now, he indicates that in verses 20 and 21. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. So God presents himself as a Redeemer. And anytime there's a Redeemer... There's a price to pay for redemption. So this is implicit sacrifice on the part of God to redeem those who will turn from transgression and who will turn from sin. God is willing to do that when people call on His name. But then look at verse number 21. As for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them, my spirit who's upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth 
shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your descendants, nor from the mouth of your descendants' descendants, says the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You see why I pray for every generation of my family until Jesus Christ returns? Because of that promise in verse number 21. I've got this written in my prayer notebook that God would come through in that way, that the word, the promise, the standards, the statutes, the precepts of God would not depart from me, from my immediate descendants, from their descendants as well. And I plead with God that that would be true until Jesus Christ returns. Otto Hallisby has said this about prayer in his family. He said, our family has been a believing and praying family for three generations. The elders in our family have prayed faithfully for their descendants. I have walked in the prayers of my parents and in answer to my parents' prayers. I reap what others have sown. So if you're not able to leave your children a legacy of wealth and money, do not worry. And do not wear yourself to death to accumulate property for your children. But see to it, night and day, that you pray for them. Then you will leave them a great legacy of answers to prayer, which will follow them all the days of their life. Hey, I want you to get a vision for just a minute. Because, because prayer offered to God on His terms is powerful, just imagine you plead with God for your descendants, and from now till Jesus returns, there's not a member of your family by birth or by marriage that fails to trust Christ as Savior with a genuine, memorable, definitive conversion experience. Just imagine, you plead with God for the descendants of your, the, the descendants of your family, so much so, with so much heart and so much urgency and so much faith, that there's not a one of them that fails to be a great commissionary, that fails to tithe, that fails to walk in holiness. It can happen because God will listen to a brokenhearted people when they plead on behalf of of their descendants. Just imagine. That can happen in your family. That can happen. It's happening in others, and it's time to happen in yours. So God is delighted when we pray on His terms. And friends, that's why it's so important for us to unify January 26th and commit ourselves to pray for one another, to select a day and an hour where we will pray and then to submit two or three impossible requests. I'll have more to say about that to you Sunday. But here's what you can do. Prayer, the existence of prayer, promises us that what God is allowing us to do is that He is allowing us to reach into the future and shape the future. God's already made some decisions, but by your prayers, you implement and enforce those decisions wherever you pray. You can actually reach into the future and shape the future. If that were not the case, then God would have limited prayer to praise and thanksgiving and confession of sin. And the Lord Jesus, when He appeared, would not emphasize what He had emphasized when teaching and practicing prayer, and that is to ask God for things. The fact that He taught us to ask God for things to come through according to His name means you can actually pray on God's terms and shape the future according to the will of God. Who in the world wouldn't want to get in on that? My soul. In other words, this is a place this evening of people who can turn to God and heaven 
will hear any whimper, any sigh, any groan, anything merely lifted to God in the name of Jesus Christ. And heaven is going to come through. Oh, it makes me want to pray. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. There is hope. Oh, there's power. And there's opportunity. And dear God, we can wreck havoc through the kingdom of hell. And we can implement all the glories of heaven.